Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 12 with Dr. Cedric Jamie Rutland. patient died from a severe respiratory illness, and it could be the country's first vaping-related death. We're learning a Nebraska man is the 14th person to die in the U.S. from vaping. The CDC now reports more than 800 documented cases of vaping-related illnesses. There have been 46 states now where people have gotten ill as well, so that gives you an idea of the scope of this. It prompted the Centers for Disease Control to now open their emergency operations center. I'm used to it being activated around things like Ebola or hurricanes and things like that. Why vaping? The outbreak of pulmonary injury associated with vaping or e-cigarettes is an emergency. We're seeing young people become critically ill and die. According to the CDC, nearly 80% of people reported using vape products containing THC, whereas just 16% reported using nicotine-only vape products. My name is Ashok Shankar. I'm the founder and CEO of Gun Guru, a state licensed cannabis business in the state of California. Been in the cannabis industry for over a decade. Vaping is a very viral product that has been, you know, booming for the last few years for us. When alcohol was, you know, during the Prohibition era, was rampant the first 20 to 30 years, there were people bootlegging moonshine, and not all of that moonshine was clean. You tell people, look, there are fake cartridges out on the market, and people are producing these oils and concentrates using impure chemicals. It's not clean. And in the cannabis sector, with these vapes, they are made with, traditionally, massively large batches of plant material, which is then extracted and condensed into a crude oil and then that oil is ran through a steam distillation machine depending on how it was cultivated the most commonly used pesticide is called eagle 20 and the active ingredient is myclobutanol and that's actually used on grapes but you don't smoke your wine right and so when mycobutanol is combusted it creates hydrogen cyanide which is a known carcinogen and that's just one of the many pesticide type situations that are happening a lot of the cart brands that you see, you can just buy the packaging online. That should be an immediate red flag to you. Mario Karts, Exotics, Dank Vapes, Kingpens, all of these have packaging online that you can buy for very, very cheap. And I'm talking about pennies. You can buy the packaging and then you can also buy the actual cartridges, empty cartridges for also mere pennies. Put whatever the f you want in it, put them together and sell them for 40 or 50 bucks and people think they're getting a steal. So he bought a product from a convenience store, paid with a credit card, and yet the product that was labeled CBD was not CBD at all. According to the CDC, as of October 8th, 2019, there have been 1,299 confirmed and probable lung injury cases associated with the use of e-cigarettes or vaping. Products have been reported in 49 out of our 50 states, and 26 deaths have been confirmed in 21 states, with California having the most deaths at 3. The CDC does mention on their website that e-cigarettes have the potential to benefit adult cigarette smokers who are not pregnant if used as a complete substitute for regular cigarettes and other smoked tobacco products. Past research has shown e-cigarettes, though not harmless, may have fewer toxins than cigarettes. So the goal here isn't to villainize vaping, but rather to examine what's changed and why this epidemic is happening right before our eyes. 
This topic granted me the opportunity to do tons of investigative journalism to get to the truth of what's really been going on. THC and CBD related vaping is accounting for about 80% of the hospitalized cases. So it turns out it's related to money and greed. Distillate is the word that is used for the liquid that people are vaping. Now believe it or not, the price and demand of distillate is insane. A clean liter of distillate goes for about $8,000 and the demand is extremely high. What's common nowadays is the practice of cutting. So just like cocaine would be cut with baking soda so you get twice as much product, people have began cutting distillate to make more money. This price of distillates can help to explain the alarming rate of bootlegged and counterfeit products. When we combine this with cannabis that is grown with harmful pesticides, the black market in non-legal states, which is leading to little to no regulation on the quality of products, and the flavoring chemicals in these vapes, we can begin to hypothesize that a combination of these factors may be responsible for this recent epidemic. On today's episode, we're bringing you the spokesman for the American Lung Association. He's a board certified pulmonologist or lung doctor, and he goes by the name of Dr. Cedric Jamie Rutland. Dr. Rutland and I touched on the topics of how our lungs are affected by vaping, cannabis use, cigarettes, and we even got to discuss mental health, death, cancer, and everything related to your lungs. Our entire team is eternally grateful for having his expertise on our show, and I can't wait to share with you what I've learned. Dr. Rutland's Instagram has over 25,000 followers. His handle is drjrutland. I'll definitely recommend giving him a follow. He's very, very inspiring. He also has a YouTube channel called Medicine Deconstructed, where he's breaking down medicine into simple and digestible forms for everybody out there. I definitely recommend checking that out. If you'd like to add to this conversation, please message us on Instagram. The handle is at Medspiration. We'd love to hear from you. And again, guys, thank you so much for helping our podcast grow. If you've been enjoying this content, please go on iTunes and rate us five stars and leave a review. Let us know what parts of the podcast that you love most. Thank you, guys. And without further ado, let the Medspiration begin. I was a first-year medical student. And my grandfather, who was my father, basically, throughout my life, he had emphysema. He developed a small bowel obstruction. He had to go to the operating room. And I remember getting a phone call from my mom and she said, hey, granddad's in the ICU. Do you wanna come home? And I had said, you know what? No, that's okay. Granddad would want me to stay and he would want me to study. So I stayed. And the last thing my grandfather ever wrote anybody was to me and it was a card words read, you know, be kind. He um, ended up passing away. I wasn't there. So I, uh, so I didn't go. And you don't know how things like this are gonna have an effect on you. And I ended up becoming a pulmonary critical care physician, which means I'm in the ICU all the time. It's funny because I always want to be there when a patient dies. And the hospital seems to always call me when a patient is dying to communicate with the family. When people are dying, the best thing to do is to be at the bedside and talk about the person being alive. What they did, what they accomplished, what made them laugh. 
and I can do that. And probably because I didn't go home and I'm constantly chasing this bedside that I'm never gonna catch because I didn't go. What do I say to myself when I'm afraid? Count backwards from five and I just go. Five, four, three, two, one. So vaping is this, you know, national phenomenon. And you're basically heating up a piece of metal. But the issue is with all the flavorings of vaping, right? All the flavorings are f forms of formaldehyde. People think that concentrating a substance and inhaling it in your lungs is not gonna harm them. When you look at vaping, here's what we know for sure. Out of the confirmed cases of vaping-related illness, when you look at the 373 that we have data on, here are the facts. 83% of the cases are under 34 years old. That is ridiculous. That is a predominantly young group of people. These people don't get sick. Yeah. They're not supposed to get sick. They're healthy people. My intention today with our conversation is to share with our audience the latest findings about vaping, cannabis use, tobacco use, and everything related to lung health. So you ready to rock and roll? I'm ready to rock. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and today I'm honored to say that we're talking with the national spokesperson of the American Lung Association on our show. He's a board-certified pulmonologist, and he's one of my greatest med inspirations. Dr. Rutland, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Can you please introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. It's uh, Dr. Cedric Jamie Rutland. Uh, Dr. Nav is right. I am a board-certified pulmonologist, internal medicine doc, and a board-certified critical care doc. And I'm one of 12 national spokespersons for the American Lung Association. Uh, I reside within Southern California, and I am a private practice pulmonary critical care doctor who also does a lot of uh, academic work. I have appointments at uh, University of California Riverside as a professor, and uh, I do a lot of traveling and speaking internationally on uh, my favorite topics. That's amazing, man. So currently I'm on medical service this month and I can tell you COPD exacerbation or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, mainly from chronic cigarette use is something that, you know, I've gotten very accustomed to seeing and treating. Now this is more common in the generation that's above 50 years old currently. And when I look back at history, I realized that they lived in a culture where tobacco was glorified when they were younger. When I start thinking ahead, I think about what our youth is being exposed to today, especially things like vaping. And, you know, I can't begin to think about the new diseases we'll be treating when my generation begins to reach their 50s. So, you know, I want to start with the hot topic of vaping and the latest research. So what, what have been your observations so far? So vaping is this you know, national phenomenon. And I get a lot of inquiries daily to talk about vaping on the news or talk about vaping in magazines. And, you know, it's quite interesting because I find it relatively funny where people think that concentrating a substance and inhaling it in your lungs is not going to harm them. I just find that a little bit interesting because when you think about any kind of medical issue, you have to go to normal, right? And if you are in your car listening to this, if you're watching this, however you're listening to this podcast, if you guys all take a deep breath in, right, air has to travel down an airway. It travels down your trachea, then it, your trachea breaks down to a right and left main stem bronchi, we call them, right, which are just pipes that carry air. And then those pipes further break down into little pipes that we call bronchioles. 
Now, if you blow up a balloon, say you got a red balloon in your hand, you're blowing it up. That lining, that color of the balloon is where the environment from the outside meets our insides, right? So our blood cells travel through that lining. And that's where gas exchange takes place. Things from the environment get absorbed. So your lungs are these organs that are one of two organs that's constantly exposed to the outside environment, right? So you've got your skin and you've got your lungs. Those are the two organs that are constantly exposed to the outside environment, okay? When air travels down those pipes, those pipes are lined with cells that are called airway epithelial cells. Mm -hmm. Now, depending on your genetics, sometimes those airway epithelial cells can start tripping, right? And they start producing different molecules that basically lead to the recruitment of inflammatory cells into the airway. Now, if you're one of those people that has a pathology that is consistent genetically with something like, say, asthma, right, which is autoimmune inflammation of those pipes, your airways are just going to start tripping just based on the environment in which you present yourself on a daily basis, right? You have to use an inhaler and all that jazz. When you think about vaping, you're, you're, you're basically heating up a piece of metal, which ends up turning a liquid into an aerosol, and you inhale it. And so now all these airway epithelial cells are getting exposed to whatever's in that liquid, which can consist of you know, propylene glycol, glycerin, which are things that are noted to be probably a little bit carcinogenic, which means they can cause cancer. But that's not the issue. Right? I don't think that vaping is going to cause a malignancy. But the issue is with all the flavorings of vaping, right? All the flavorings are f- forms of formaldehyde. So like the cinnamon flavor is cinnamon aldehyde, right? And so formaldehyde we know is a carcinogen. And so again, those are the things that are causing probably some of these problems. In addition to heating up that metal, there have been a bunch of case reports of people, you know, developing what we call hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is just a fancy way of saying inflammation in the airway secondary to something in the environment due to like a vape cigarette or, you know, a THC vape. You know, at the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, we study these things. And when you look at vaping, here's what we know for sure. And this is as of Thursday. We have a, we've been able to compile complete sex and age data on 373 out of the 530 confirmed cases of vaping-related illness. When you look at the 373 that we have data on, here are the facts. Three-quarters of them are male. 72% of them are male. Two-thirds of the cases, 67%, are between the ages of 18 to 34. Now, this is a point that needs to be made because these are people who don't get sick, right? I'm assuming you're between the age of 18 and 34. I'm no longer in that age group. I'm 38. But these are the people who are getting sick, right? Two-thirds of them are 18 and 34 years old. That is a predominantly young group of people. These people don't get sick. Yeah. They're not supposed to get sick. They're healthy people, Right. 16% of the cases are under 18. So if you do under 34, so we got 67% plus 16. So what is that? 83? So that's 83% of the cases are under 34 years old. That is ridiculous. And then 17% are obviously 35 and older. All reported cases have a history of e-cigarette use or vaping some product. I will say this. We do know this. Most of the reported cases have a history of e-cigarette product use that contain THC, tetrahydral cannabinol, right, which is the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana. Many of those patients use both products, and only some have just used only nicotine. That's so mind-blowing because 
I grew up in liquor stores. So my dad owned liquor stores. So back in the day, you know, we would sell cigarettes, we'd sell liquor. And, you know, I remember when e-cigarettes came on the market and the the best marketing tool was, hey, these don't smell like cigarettes um, and they can have really good flavors. So right. if you really want to quit smoking cigarettes, why don't you switch over to these e-cigs, save right. yourself that lung damage and, right. and do something that's relatively healthy compared to smoking. Now, you know, you look at that was like 12 years ago, man, like 10, 10 years ago, if that. So yeah. it's super scary. We're finding out this is just causing, I've heard chemical pneumonitis. It's a relative That's term. hypersensitivity. Yeah, okay. that's hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So okay. anytime you use the word pneumonitis, that just means inflammation in the lung. Yeah, you know, I think it's just important to understand what exactly is in that cartridge and what exactly that e-cigarette consists of, right? You know, when you're heating up these products, right? Sometimes people will, at least with marijuana and THC, they'll dab, you know? And yeah, all dab yeah. means is you're hitting, you're heating these products up to like a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. And then you get other products that are produced like toluene and all these combustible type of gases and things. And so when you are heating these these products up to these extreme temperatures, you get all kinds of reactive oxygen species. You'll get all kinds of things that are just going to lead to worsening of your inflammation. Mm -hmm. And that's a real, real problem, right? And that's what's causing probably all this disease. When you look at a chest X-ray of someone that has these illnesses, and I took care of two people, one last week and one a couple months ago, who had vaping-related lung injury. The chest X-ray looks like is a normal chest X-ray you can see the lungs, the lungs are supposed to be like me, right? They're supposed to be black. So mm -hmm. the lungs are supposed to be black because they're full of air. When the mm -hmm. lungs aren't full of air and they're full of like soft tissue, which can be inflammation or fluid, the lungs look more white. So the chest x-ray looks like lungs that are whiter, right? And so you just see this overall inflammation. And when you look at the CAT scan, you see the same thing. You can see this inflammation throughout the CAT scan throughout the lungs. And so we don't really know how to treat these people. We all generally do the same thing. You know, we put them on antibiotics, we might look in their lungs, squirt some fluid in, suck it out, look at it under a microscope and find some characteristics that are similar amongst these people. If all else fails and those things aren't working, we're probably going to start some steroids yep. to try to reduce the inflammation by de-recruiting some of these inflammatory cells to the lung, which is basically how steroids work. That sounds a lot like how we treat COPD patients right now. And you know, I, have a, I have an interesting question. So, you know, we grew up in California. I think you're from SAC as well, which is uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I got some friends who, you know, own smoke shops and, you know, I've seen these gadgets. Now, these gadgets are for THC. And um, this is when dabbing became big. You know, everybody doing the little dabs because yeah. it was like it was from that culture. And, you know, they came out with these these things where you could heat them to a certain temperature and they would they would vape the product, whether it was cannabis or oil um, to, to like maybe a hundred degrees versus a thousand degrees. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I forgot what these things are called, but I saw that a lot of people what the, what they say on the streets is, yo, like this doesn't heat them up as much and you might avoid maybe some of the side effects and stuff. Is there any fact to that? Like what's up with that? So I think it's obvious that the higher temperature you heat these products to the more inflammatory products you're likely going to get. So I do think that there's some truth in to not heating up these things as much, right? And trying to keep that temperature to a certain degree. But, you know, I'm never going to say to a patient, hey, fool, it's cool. Just go ahead and dab. Just, yeah. you know, make sure it's 500 degrees or less and not 1,000 degrees. I mean, that's bullshit. Like, yeah. you're not going to do that, right? You're not going to say that to a patient. Yep. You know, it, it's funny because recently, and it'll probably be controversial, but I recorded a YouTube episode the other day mm -hmm. um, on my channel. And I, um, and the, what I did was I just had one of my friends who's a stoner. I had him roll a blunt. I had him roll a joint. 
yeah. and I had the vape, the vape pen, the weed, the THC vape pen. And the thing about it is when you roll a joint, at least you know what's in it, right? It's just paper yeah. and marijuana, right? Yeah. Whereas in the pen, you're just heating it up to this, you're heating up this lipid oil. They have to put it in lipid because marijuana is very, you know, it's not soluble enough to really exactly. just be yeah. on its own. The process of vaping is what is what's bad. So it's uh, really, really harmful for you. And again, can you get away with doing it, doing it for a few days or a few weeks or maybe even a year? I'm sure you could. I had a recent friend who vaped. He actually ended up getting a terrible diagnosis, but he's my age. I think that he's going to be fine. But again, these things don't go without harm, right? They don't, they, they don't go without harm. That's what's important. Too much of anything will kill you. You know, so whether something's being marketed as it's going to help you with your health, you know, you do enough of that and it's, it's not going to be healthy for you, you know. So right. again, every, everything in moderation is, is usually a good philosophy to Ooh, go about yeah. things. And I think this is a, a good transition into just a cannabis in general. So now I'm, I'm learning that vaporizing can cause harm to the lungs, just like smoking something can. One of the things I've actually noticed is cyclical vomiting syndrome. So I've yeah. actually had... A number of patients, because here in Illinois, cannabis is also legal now. Have you seen cannabis use causing cyclical vomiting syndrome? And if so, like what's what's the pathophysiology there? How does that even happen? No one really knows, but we do know that patients that smoke uh, marijuana and smoke uh, cannabis can develop it, especially the ones that smoke it, you know, a lot. By a lot, I mean, I don't know, maybe four or five blunts a day, four or five joints a day, something like that. Uh, it, it's like a migraine-like condition, uh, so it might be related to change in signaling between the nerve cells in your brain. Most of the nausea and vomiting comes from your brain stem, so mm-hmm. it might be something in there. So no one really knows. It, it could be a mitochondrial DNA problem. What marijuana smokers will do is they'll go take a hot shower, <laughs> right? Oh and that really God. helps their symptoms. Yeah, I had a patient that was saying that, man. And yeah. you know, yeah. she was like, I, I learned if I could get in a hot bath, it goes away. And like she yeah. just um, that was the thing. So, OK, that's that, so supposedly research also has shown that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, I know that when people smoke tobacco, it's a bronchoconstrictor. It, it causes the, the bronchi to constrict. I've heard before that cannabis was used as a bronchodilator in the past. Is this fact or is that just myth? OK, so that's a good question. So let's let's go over marijuana, cannabis in general. Cannabis has been used for 5,000 years uh, for properties such as like anti-nausea, anti-seizure, anti-inflammatory. And the question is why? So within our body, right, we have an endocannabinoid system. So we have two types of receptors. We have cannabinoid receptor one, cannabinoid receptor two, okay? And they're kind of distributed throughout the entire body. Now, most of the receptors in our body are within our brain. Okay, in several areas of the brain. The other receptors are on immunological types of cells, okay? And so that's usually the cannabinoid receptor two. Cannabinoid receptor one is usually in the brain. Now, we have two cannabinoids that our body naturally produces. One's called ANA, the other one's called 2AG. And what they do in the body is they help reduce inflammation, okay? okay? And in the brain, they kind of calm things down in the brain, right? So uh, it's kind of the best way to put it. The problem with marijuana, and here's the issue, is back in the 2000s, most of the marijuana that was produced in the world had a percentage of THC, tetrahydrocannabinoid, which is um, a cannabinoid in marijuana that's the psychoactive substance. The THC percentage might have been like 8%. And now it's upwards of 30 to 40% because people want that psychoactivity. 
Wow. Right. And so when you look at even the synthetic cannabinoids, they are extremely psychoactive. And so that's why people like them. The ones that they're, people are smoking, eating and such, they are extremely psychoactive, even more so than THC. And so, again, you have this natural system in your body and people are taking advantage of this natural system. Right. We notice that people want more of that psychoactive feeling. And so we're in, so people are increasing the THC concentration. Some of this stuff is regulated. And the way that people who sell it get around it, at least from a synthetic standpoint, is certain molecules are forbidden and then they just change one of the carbon yep. chains and then boom, yep. it's not regulated and you can sell it again. If I have patients that come in to me and say, hey doc, you know, I smoke weed, I've got all this pain because it works. You can see it working in some of these uh, rheumatologic True. conditions. And yep. I am, a, so I'm a specialist in what's called interstitial lung disease, right? And idiopathic oh. pulmonary fibrosis. So interstitial lung disease is autoimmune lung disease other than asthma. I mean, I'm, I'm one that thinks about asthma being the world's oldest interstitial lung disease. But um, when you have an ILD, right, you probably have a rheumatologic condition or a connective tissue disease. You might be having hurt joints, hurt back, thing like that. So I have patients that swear by it and say, hey, marijuana really helps my pain. I just want people to not smoke it. I might say, listen, I'm a pulmonologist and I got to be real. Like, right, I'm a black doctor, right? If If I'm going there telling people to like use weed, I want to get killed. Right. So I'm like, I'm not going to be like, yo, why don't you go use some weed and try it out? But if people say, hey, this really helps my pain. They're like 75 years old with joints. I'll say, listen, I'm glad it helps your pain. I don't want you to to smoke it. Just don't smoke it. okay? if you're going to eat it, whatever. Tell me. Don't tell me. Don't care. I'm not going to endorse it. But I'm going to tell you, like, I'd rather have you not smoke it. Yeah, it's interesting, man, because, uh, again, I saw that trend where cannabis has also been marketed as something that's relatively healthier than smoking cigarettes. I've seen it marketed the same way vaping is, where it's cannabis is the way it can heal all. And then, again, I see the same thing, where once it gets legalized, we're seeing the chronic abuse of it. And, again, too much of anything can hurt you. And and I'm seeing the same thing there, where you know now I'm seeing cyclical vomiting syndrome like crazy, right? And right. I know that like 80% of our serotonin is in our gut. And supposedly yeah. our CBD receptors are also in the gut. Is this uh, yeah. is this a fact? And what's what's up with the CBDs? Because I know that those are not psychoactive, but some people swear by that. So what's the hype all about? So CBD is cannabidiol, right? And so yes. that molecule is not as psychoactive as THC. And so basically the power of weed is based on CBD versus THC. Now, traditionally what we say is that CBD has more of the medicinal properties of marijuana, whereas THC has the psychoactivity of marijuana. The ratio is what's important. And the THC, the CBD ratio is increased throughout time. Mm -hmm. And so CBD tends to calm down inflammation. CBD tends to reduce anxiety. CBD tends to be anti-epileptic. That's why people that smoke or eat cannabis and it's more CBD, that's probably why they swear by it. It's not the THC. It's not the high feeling. It's that CBD product. And so that's what most people don't realize is they're almost, they're two different molecules. Any research on chronic CBD use yet? It's, It's really tough to tease that out because you still have a ratio of THC and CBD in all marijuana plants. I think that there's no one that's teasing out exactly, oh, just CBD only. But when you look at medicinal marijuana, it's mostly CBD and less THC. I see learning something new there. That's, that's pretty cool. Can cannabis be used to fight cancer? Because I've heard this and I don't know if it's true. 
So cannabis can be used to fight cancer. They're studying it. I think it depends. The way that I look at cannabis as fighting cancer per se is the the way that your body fights cancer is probably through a cell called the natural killer cell, a type of white blood cell that floats around your body and recognizes cells that are in trouble or abnormal. And then it's going to induce programmed cell death or apoptosis. So once programmed cell death gets induced, that cell is then dead or gone. So my question would be, you know, is there any research on cannabis use leading to the increase of activity of the natural killer cell, which would be interesting. I mean, I, that's something that I'd be interested in. The cytotoxic T cells, natural killer cells, they've done a lot of research on them killing cancer. And I, I believe one of the Nobel prizes was just handed out in, uh, in trying to you know, use those cells to kill cancer. So if there is a link there, that'd be really interesting. I'm sure there's going to be more research done in the future. The next topic is kind of cannabis versus tobacco use. Like What's the difference? Is one better than the other? So I am a pulmonologist, right? So I can't sit here and endorse smoking either product. But I'm not going to lie. Like, I would rather have somebody smoke a marijuana cigarette Mm -hmm. than smoke 20 cigarettes a day. Yeah. Right? And if somebody asked me the question and they want my opinion, like, that's what I would say. So if you have to choose one, you know, I'd rather you take a couple of puffs of a marijuana cigarette a day instead of smoking a pack or two of cigarettes a day. In terms of toxicity, you know, I can't say that marijuana has been implicated in, in lung cancers or anything like that yet. Nobody can say that for sure yet. Who knows? So it's more a volume thing. Like people who smoke weed smoke less weed than people who smoke tobacco who are smoke, you know, a pack is 20 cigarettes. You know, I know, I know people who smoke three packs per day. That's 60 cigarettes. Now, I don't know if it's possible to smoke 60 blunts in a day, man. So, I mean, so you know what's funny is that's what I say in clinic. Like, I'll be like, you ain't smoking 60 blunts. So I'd rather have you do that. Like, if you're going to do that, right? I don't endorse smoking any product. But again, for people that have true anxiety, for people that have true cancer pain, for people that have true joint pains, medical cannabis is the way to go. You don't have to smoke it. I know it's looked upon as bad because it's, you know, it's a brown drug. If you want to use it, use it. Go eat it. Make brownies. Like, whatever. Like, medicinally, I can, I'm a scientist. I know how the receptors work. I understand that our body has an endocannabinoid system, and I understand how that system works. If you want to eat it, eat it. Just don't smoke it. Uh, next, next subject, I wanted to talk about opioids, alcohol, their impact on respiratory drive, celebrity deaths from ODs. We see this every few months. We're seeing celebrities dying left and right. You know, that is... One of my biggest pet peeves mm-hmm. and one of my biggest frustrations in this world is every time there's a young person that's an athlete or that dies suddenly, I say it every effing time. It's opiates. It's heroin. These guys are celebrated and um, severe, sorely missed, as they should be. Yeah. But what's celebrated is their life and their impact on their teams, that's what's celebrated. But then when the results finally come at the bottom of the ESPN ticker, nobody talks about, oh, it looks like we found opiates in this guy's bloodstream. And he, you know, that's how he died. And that was his cause of death. And it's so frustrating to me because they're ignoring a huge epidemic. Wow. That's, that's what should be loud is that part, right? The other part is important for family and it's important for friends and important for teams. And I understand that. And I think in the appropriate setting, they should be celebrated because life is something that should be celebrated but 
the cause of death and the opioid epidemic that this country is demonstrating is just ridiculous. I feel like a lot of people don't realize is, you know, the opioids and the heroin, they decrease respiratory drive. And, you know, we speak about the physiology on this podcast all the time where we breathe out carbon dioxide. When we don't get rid of carbon dioxide, which is acidic, our body becomes acidic. That's usually the common cause of death is where the respiratory drive is halted. And that's where Narcan has helped a lot. So opioids do two things. So I think it's important to understand um, what's happening is when you have an opiate receptor. So in your brainstem, it tells your body to not breathe. That's what opioids do, right? If you take too much, it tells your body to not breathe. Now, what ventilation is, it's getting rid of carbon dioxide, right? And so as you build up your CO2 in your bloodstream, your body is doing its best to keep up. But as you build it up because of carbonic anhydrase, you're going to end up producing bicarbonate and H+, which makes you more acidotic, right? H+, plus is it's, it's hydrogen ion in your bloodstream. And the higher concentration of hydrogen ion, the lower your pH. When that happens and you become altered and you don't breathe, you're not, first of all, your CO2 is high, you're becoming acidotic. And second of all, because you're not breathing, you're hypoventilating. There's only five causes of hypoxemia in a human being. There's always five. There's only going to be five. One of the advice uh, points I'd give to you is, there's only five causes of hypoxemia. So anybody that's on oxygen, it's one of those five or a combination of those five. You need to understand that it's either hypoventilation, they're not breathing, VQ mismatch, okay? Yep. They're mm-hmm. not ventilating or perfusing. A shunt, which is just perfusion without ventilation. Um, a reduced diffusing capacity, okay? Meaning that the point at which oxygen is diffusing across the membrane to get in your bloodstream is not there any longer. Or it's altitude, now, it's oh. never going to be fucking altitude unless you're in Avengers Age of Ultron, Sokovia, <laughs> and you're rising up in the sky, right? So it's not going to be that. So yep. you really only have four options. And for the residents and fellows that I train, if they don't know why somebody's on oxygen, I wish I could just slap them. But there's only four causes, bro. Okay? So that's what opioids do. Now, in terms of alcohol, alcohol depresses your brain. And so as it depresses your brain, you may not take appropriate breaths. So mm-hmm. if you're drunk as hell and you're doing opioids, odds are you're going to present to my ICU with hypoventilation and acute hypercapnic respiratory failure and hypoxemic respiratory failure. And it happens pretty commonly. And you see this all the time. That's why people who are withdrawing from alcohol, that's why they get so excited and agitated because they've been suppressing their brain for so long. Now their brain has all these neurons and their brain is like, hey, you see Phyllis over there. And Phyllis ain't even really there, right? (laughs) called delirium tremens, right? And then you have seizures because it's hyperactive brain and hyperactive uh, uh, activity. And holiday heart syndrome. We talk about the heart. It starts racing too, right? So holiday heart syndrome, real quick, just so you know, holiday heart syndrome is as a result of alcohol alcohol abuse as well. And what will happen is your heart will go into this rhythm that we call atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. Atrial fibrillation is an abnormal rhythm of the heart. So your heart doesn't collect blood or eliminate blood uh, from its chambers as efficiently so you can develop pulmonary edema and you're going to feel some palpitations and things like that. Uh, it's really fascinating how the body works. So what, what do you do when someone comes in and you know they got that decreased respiratory drive, whether it's alcohol, opioids, or something else? Like what Medically, what do you do? Because I think it's important for people to understand like where the interventions come in. Typically speaking, if, they have, if they're on opioids, we can give them a reversal agent called Narcan or naloxone which is an antagonist. And so what it's going to do is it basically competes with opioids at the same 
factor. And so it's going to reverse those effects almost immediately. People start yawning and crying and shit like that. Yep. But it works immediately and it'll wake them up. With opioid withdrawal, you can give people methadone. Some people need methadone, which is a lower dose type of opioid that you can give people to help them through the process. For alcohol, there's not much, man. Alcohol is the only drug in the world that you can withdraw from and die. So yep. with alcohol, you have to support them. So you give them medicines called benzodiazepines to calm down their brain uh, until they wake up. And it happens a lot. And you know, it's a scare tactic in a lot of college students who drink too much. And again, I was one of those students, right? So are you probably. Yep. And I, I mean, I never got to that point, but mm-hmm. some kids do. I mean, I was in Tahoe in July and I was just walking, you know, trying to enjoy myself, walk to the beach in Tahoe with my family and all that jazz. And there's this 19 year old little girl passed out on the side of the road with her boyfriend and his friend, and she just passed out. And that's because of alcohol, right? She just drank too much and she's just out. And she, her brain is depressed. Her clothes are off and they just left her on the side of the road. I'm like, bro, like, what are you doing? Yeah. Right? So we call the ambulance, we get her taken care of and all that jazz. Yeah. But anyway, shit like that happens, right? And so you just don't, you just have to be very careful with it. So we just support people through it. Yeah, and speaking of the alcohol, you know, one of the things that wasn't really tested on boards that I see in the hospital is like alcoholic ketoacidosis. I found that really interesting. And then, you know, at what point, if someone's breathing doesn't come back, when is it indicated to intubate them? And what's that process like for the people who want to know the full extreme measures that you guys do and how you really have to save lives when there's no other options? Um, I intubate people when they're not breathing on their own and they have an acidotic pH and they're out of it. That's easy, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So if somebody's, if somebody's not breathing and uh, their pH is out of whack, I'm going to intubate you, period, and let you wake up. And when you wake up, you wake up and I'll take the tube out. Easy, easy, easy peasy. Mm-hmm. Intubate means I put a tube down their throat and breathe for them. Yep. Now, in terms of alcoholic ketoacidosis, it's actually a combination of problems. So it's starvation because most alcoholics aren't eating. And it's alcohol use. Right. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a high blood sugar, but they have a lot of they have a high alcohol level. And because they're starving, they develop an acidosis. So it's like acid on acid, basically, which uh, which causes that. And it's also it points us towards a direction where you realize we're seeing a lot of abuse of these agents. And, you know, I agree with what you're saying with I think it's right to celebrate these athletes and these people who pass. But we should be using these opportunities to to speak about the deeper issues, right? That if we're seeing this in the people we're looking up to most, there's something we're not addressing. And then that's kind of where we get to the mental health aspect of it. That's something we've been talking about the last few podcasts. I'm hopeful that we could change the culture, man. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what it takes is it's going to take somebody with balls that's going to say like, you know, that's going to just be obvious. I remember when, um, I think when, when Prince died, uh, they tried to say it was the flu, yeah, yeah. I was like, I got all these calls from the news. and They're like, hey, can you talk about the flu on national television? I was like, I could talk about the flu all goddamn day. But I could tell you right now, yeah, that mofo flu. did not die of the flu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> OK, yeah. it's like the same thing with the angels picture. Right. I was like, you can say whatever you want. You guys could say the dude gets a physical every year. It ain't his heart. OK, like it's obvious what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, I just think it's going to take someone to just be like, look, bro. This person died because of this. What are we going to do about it? I've thought about, you know, doing a YouTube episode like right after something happened and just kind of, you know, making my assumptions. But like it's a, it's a risk because, well, number one, you could be wrong. 
but it doesn't mean that there's not a problem. One of the things that I've learned just being on this month of service, death is a pretty natural process. The reason I really love family medicine is just this week, I was on call for uh, service and OB at the same time, you know, so I'm in the middle of like admitting someone when I get my OB pager goes off, got to catch this baby. So I go, I had the honor of delivering that baby and then I come back and one of my patients just passes away and I'm looking at it. It's like from womb to tomb, the, the beauty of the circle of life, I guess, where you're seeing life being brought in and you're seeing life leaving. You spoke about this when we spoke over the phone, death being a natural process. Death is the most natural process it is the most common action on the planet because we're wow. all going to die. And I see someone in the hospital, right, when they come in to me and they're 80 years old or something like that, you know, their kidneys are 80, their heart is 80, their lungs are 80, their liver is 80. Not to mention the fact that they're in the hospital for whatever pathology. And so their body is going through the natural process of dying. Yep. And for reasons that I can't explain, People have a hard time accepting that. And I get it. I know it's hard and I know it's difficult. You know, when you're explaining these things to, to, to patients and to people, you're doing a lot of teaching and educating. And it's important to try not to say the word death and dead. You just want to say, you know, natural deterioration. Wow. And the patient's moving from this stage of life to the next stage of life. We just don't know what that stage is. Yeah, you're right. Right? I don't even remember what it's like being in somebody's womb. Yep. But that was the stage of life, too. Yep. So I, it's just hard for people to to grasp that. And I'm not saying that people should accept it, but yeah. I'm just saying that sometimes, you know, when you have a 91 year old and you got all these machines on them and things like that, it's, you know, you got to ask them. And if you ask most patients by themselves without their family there, mm -hmm. they all say the same thing, which is I'm ready. It's been a really humbling thing that I feel honored to be a part of that with families when they're, when their loved one is passing and we get to have these almost enlightening conversations, we're all guaranteed one thing in life, and that's we're going to die. Philosophically, I meditate every day, and you know, every morning I do think about the fact that today could be my last day. That's something that you know we could use positive forces thinking about it that way. If this is my last day, I want to live it like my best life. You know, I want to be able to bring the best version of myself to the table every day because I know that I'm not guaranteed life forever, and there's going to be that transformational phase that we don't know what happens. Thermodynamics, you can't create or destroy energy, it transforms. What do we transform into? God knows, I don't know, man. And especially you as a family practice physician, mm -hmm. I think it's important to be upfront and honest with people and just say like, hey, your liver doesn't work very well, your kidneys don't work very well. Um, it's quite possible that you develop an infection and you develop something in which you get to the point to where you can't communicate. Since you're in my office right now, what do you want to tell me if you get to that point? The intention is to be there for them and to provide as much help as we can. It's been a beautiful journey, man. It's been tough. Next subject I wanted to talk about, kind of the latest research in healing smokers' lungs. Well, one of the most common questions we get, and like, so our YouTube channel, the most watched video we have is how to purify smokers' lungs. I think it has like 4 million views right now, right? And there's, yeah, because like, you of can't research. do it. <laughs> oh, okay, because I've heard honey can help. I've heard certain foods can help. I've heard... Getting a massage distributes lymph. Now, what, what do you know? What's the research? Is it true? Is it false? What's up? One of the common misconceptions, one of the common misnomers, and, and I hate that my field does this, mm -hmm. is the term COPD. Um, the term COPD means nothing to me. So COPD actually consists, so COPD stands for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, right? Mm -hmm. So COPD actually consists of two different illnesses. One is chronic bronchitis, 
which is inflammation of the bronchioles, right? So it's somebody who coughs for more than three months for two years in a row each year. The second disease is emphysema, which is dead lung, okay? Dead lung, you can't heal. Once you have dead lung, your your lung is dead. You can't bring that back. It's gone. Now, if we're talking about bronchitis, if we're talking about inflammation in the lung, there is research on that. And what we know is that eating antioxidants, fruits, vegetables, things like that, can... Uh, reduce the amount of inflammation within your body okay Okay. staying staying away from dairy capsaicin specifically staying away from red meat interleukin-6 staying away from meat in general which all increase the inflammatory products um, is more healthy and will lead to uh, a reduced amount of inflammation within your lung once your lung has been damaged whether it's emphysematous which is dead lung or scarred which is just fibrosis you're not reversing that that's that's done unless you get a lung transplant, which you can get. Ah, so that that makes sense. There's possibility of prolonged life by stopping the insult and by decreasing the inflammation, but yeah. there's no real reversal of it. I love the way that you explain the physiology and how it's broken down to such a simple process. Now, what about honey? I've heard that honey has antibacterial properties, beneficial to the lung. What's your thoughts about that? When you look at honey and you think about its properties, it has some of the same products that the folic compounds, which are going to suppress some of the inflammatory molecules within your body. So within your body, okay, and what we're learning more and more every single day. So again, I told you earlier that that I'm an expert or I have expertise in interstitial lung disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, asthma. And what we're learning is that in those inflammatory diseases, the way that cells communicate with one another are through these molecules called cytokines, okay? Cytokines are molecules that essentially lead to the activation of your nucleus to produce products that lead to the recruitment of inflammatory cells to a certain place. When you are recruiting inflammatory cells to a certain place, you get inflammation. And so what honey has and other products in fruits and vegetables are anti-inflammatory activities. So they are going to suppress pro-inflammatory activities of, so for honey, it's cyclooxygenase 2 and also nitric oxide. So Uh. nitric oxide is a molecule that's produced in pathology. It's produced a lot in asthma as well, pulmonary hypertension. And when you, there are three types in your bloodstream, okay? Uh, But the, the pathophysiology or the pathology one is called inducible nitric oxide. And so what honey does is it will help suppress some of those activities as well. Um, and so that's how honey works in terms of being an anti-inflammatory uh, within your body. Yes, and it's important to mention, like I know that babies, you shouldn't give them honey. Oh, so I think that you need bacteria to break down some of the products of honey. Um, yeah. I think that's what it is. And so babies are basically sterile when they come out, right? Mm-hmm. That's why they get that shot of vitamin K because yep. within your body, one of the um, – vitamins that we need it's called vitamin k but we don't make it bacteria in our colon makes it and so that's why babies get that shot of vitamin k right away um is for it's for that purpose so i think it has something to do around that if i'm not mistaken but i could be wrong on that that's pretty interesting as someone who meditates every day i do a lot of breath work mantras meditation prayer there's a lot of research on breath work working affecting lung health or affecting overall health? I think meditation and yoga can affect overall health. I think the more relaxed you are, obviously the calmer your body is. Um, and you can see that. 
Uh, and you can see that. Do I tell people to calm down a lot and I tell people to take their time and I tell my daughter to meditate or to take a couple of deep breaths when she's like really worked up. Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of, you know, bringing that into my practice, Mm -hmm. not necessarily, right. Do I bring yoga into my practice? Not necessarily. Like, it's not like I'm going to have someone that has a really bad lung disease Uh and not offer them traditional therapies and just say, Hey, just go to yoga. You'll be cool. Like you don't do that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, but you do teach people about having a clear mind and a and a healthy mind, yeah. So, Doc, we're gonna be moving into the most popular portion of our podcast now. This is where our audience submits questions for you. So we had over seventy five questions submitted to you over the last twelve hours since we tagged you, and I narrowed them down myself using the most common questions that were submitted. So okay. I'm not gonna sit here and ask you seventy five questions, but it just goes to show how many people are interested about this topic. Number one, Diego Davila asks, there have been hundreds of cases of lung disease associated with vaping across the U.S. What aspect of vaping do you believe is contributing to the issue? And do you think there is a safe way to vape THC? I don't think there's a safe way to vape any product because I think that you're basically taking products that have activity in your body and some can be harmful. I think what you're doing is you're just playing the lottery. If you have the genetics to develop inflammation, you're going to develop inflammation. If you're inhaling the wrong product or the product's not as clean, then you're exposing your body to something that's harmful to you. And so I would just look for warning signs. Example, if you inhale something and you're coughing, that's a warning sign. Okay. Like cough is not something that's like, oh, that's cool. I just coughed. Nah, bro. (laughs) If you're coughing because you just hit, you know, some uh, popular vape product with THC, that's just, that doesn't mean it was a good. It just means that like, don't do it again. Because your body's Body's like, get it out. Yeah, it's true. So I think that there are two components that make a product dangerous is is, uh, heating up that metal and you do inhale some metal products and there's plenty of research published on that. And I also think that the degree, the temperature at which the liquid reaches is also irritating to the airway, right? And can create all kinds of products that can harm your airways. Question number two is by Mustafa. He asks, how exactly does nicotine affect the lungs and the body? Good question. So there are nicotinic receptors within the body, okay? Nicotinic receptors, the type of receptor within the body. Now, your body can become really addicted to nicotine because of its activity on the nicotinic receptor. And tobacco companies know this. That's why they, you know, that's why they have such good product. I mean, by good product, I mean, you know, a product that's bought. But nicotine can also cause vasoconstriction and bronchoconstriction, meaning that it can make your blood vessels narrow and it can also narrow your bronchioles. So your bronchioles have muscle that surround them. And I believe nicotine can narrow both of those. You know, nicotine is addictive. So I don't care if somebody chews nicotine gum or uses a nicotine patch for the rest of their life because it's really all of the carcinogens and everything else in the tar that's in the cigarette that's harmful. So, you know, nicotine is kind of a natural substance. Yeah, but you can't overdose on nicotine and become like really nauseated and vomit and have, you know, respiratory tract infections and things like that. Okay. So question number three by Omizi. He asks, how do you deal with non-compliant patients that don't quit smoking? You know, that's a very tough question. Um, Patients are people and people are allowed to make choices. People are allowed to do whatever the hell they want to do. 
And it's my job as a pulmonologist to inform people of the consequences of their decision. And that's what I do. So sometimes people continue to do things that you don't endorse, like smoke, but people understand their decision. And it's, it's interesting. And again, on the YouTube episode, you'll see this. People make their decision and they know that it's bad for them. They know. They yep. know. They do. They do. And yep. so it's just my job to tell them. I'm a, I'm a physician. I'm going to tell them, hey, this is what you're doing. This is what's happening. I'm going to do as much as I can. But you have to be honest with them. You have to tell them there's only so much that I can do. You take it out of your hands. You don't have to take it personally that they're not listening to you. I don't take it personally. I just let them do what they want to do. And I just tell them, hey, you know, when you're ready, I'm here to help you. Right. I think that's so. a that's a seasoned a seasoned response because you know over time we start realizing like these boundaries are so important you know where patients autonomy they do what they want and we we got to make sure we're composed and we don't enforce our will on them and I think that's a I can tell that you've been in medicine long enough where you may have been disappointed a lot a lot but you've learned over time that you know your choice is your choice and my job is to be able to educate to the best of my ability exactly uh, question number four Kovacs Monica asks. How does lung cancer work and can it be reversed once someone has it? That's a great question, Monica. So let's think about lung cancer for a minute. So what is lung cancer? So lung cancer is an abnormal cell that gets produced within your lung because of either a genetic predisposition or because of its environmental exposure, okay? So for example, if you have a genetic predisposition and you have something wrong with your genes already, say you have the P53 gene or whatever, or, yep. say, uh, or say you get exposed to smoking, your lung cell can change the way that it looks, it's called metaplasia, and then it be can become a cell that continues to produce itself and undergo mitosis multiple times, and then it becomes a conglomeration of abnormal cells that can then break through the lymph system and use that freeway to get up and down your body, right? That's what the lymph system is. The lymph system is Basically, essentially a freeway system that white blood cells use to survey the body, but also to fight infection. So if the white blood cells need to go to the kidney to fight the kidney infection, they get on the lymph system, they go down the thoracic duct, they get to around the cisterna chile, and they'll exit that way, and they'll get into the kidney and fight the infection. That's what they're supposed to do. But cancer cells take advantage of this by using the lymph system to travel up and down the body. That's why we biopsy lymph nodes to stage cancer. Now, when you develop a cancer... Within the lung, there are many different types. There's squamous cell, there's non-small there's non cell, there's small cell lung cancer, there's carcinoid. There's so many different types of lung cancer. Genetically, it looks different. The first thing you want to do is you want to know what kind of cancer it is. The second thing you want to know is what stage is the cancer. So I might biopsy lymph nodes or biopsy bones or brains or I basically want to know the highest stage. Cancer is staged one through four and it's based on survival. So stage one for lung cancer, it's like an 80 some odd percent five-year survival, which means that 80 some odd percent of people are alive in five years. Stage two, it's like 67%. So 67% of people might be alive in five years. Mm -hmm. Stage three, it's like 40 something percent. Stage four is like 18, 20% of people are alive in five years, right? So one out of five people is alive in five years. So you gotta be able to stage it. Once you biopsy the cancer, we do two things. One, we generally name the type of cancer, right? Small cell, non-small cell, um, carcinoid, whatever. Two, we genetically look at the receptors on the cell. And this is something that's new and precise. We call this precision medicine. Based on those receptors of the cell, we'll test this cancer to see if it responds to some of the newer agents, the agents that you can take by mouth and swallow, mm -hmm. right? And so we call these, there's agents called PD-1 inhibitors. There's an EGFR yep. receptor inhibitor. These yep. are all types of 
receptors on the cell that we can see that we stain for. So if those receptors are there, we just simply inhibit that receptor and the cancer will shrink, right? Or we use traditional chemotherapy, which basically drops a bomb on every cell that grows fast. So chemotherapy is a medicine that once you give it and you give it into the bloodstream, it kills any cell that grows fast as fuck. So that's why people that have um, that get receive chemotherapy develop nausea, vomiting, and loose stool because your GI tract cells grow every 24 uh, hours. Yep, yep, yep. Lining, so those cells die really quickly, just like the cells um, in on your head. Your hair cells, same thing. That's why people lose their hair with cancer because of the chemotherapy. So that's essentially the five minutes um, explanation of a lung cancer. I don't know if you've seen, we, we do animations with uh, yeah. the explanations of this, and you have, uh, there is so much crack in this right now that we're, we're going to make uh, some pretty cool animations that, that I just feel like it's going to educate millions. Moving into our last question, Zoe Exner asks, how did you become the American Lung Association spokesperson? How did I become an American Lung Association po- spokesperson? You know, it's actually, it actually... Um, I want you guys to, and this is kind of just general advice, okay? One of the things that you're going to do, and you too now, one of the things that you're going to do is you're going to collect experiences, okay, throughout your career. And you've started collecting your experience by starting this podcast and Medspiration, right? That's an experience, and you're in the media world. And so when you're doing things and you're collecting all of these things, at some point, something is going to be there that you want to achieve, and it's going to be really easy to apply for it because you've already collected the experiences. Oh. So what I tell people is don't try and go collect experiences when you see something that you want. Have them. So you never know what's going to happen. You never know what doing something means. I speak all over the country and all over the world. I do all kinds of things and lectures and, and, and give myself extra what would, consider, what would be considered work. But mm-hmm. again... I have been rewarded enough in life to fully understand that going through all of these motions and doing all of these things is going to lead to something. And I can't define it right now, but it's going to be something. And so you just have to go through life the same way. When somebody asks you to do something, don't look at it as work. Look at it as experience. Look at it as what am I going to get out of this? And what are they going to get out of this? Right. When you, when you take a job, if you're going to get something out of it, you need to say yes, because that's, what's going to give you that experience. And that's, what's going to help you along the way. And I just find that to be extremely important. And it's just something that I picked up in life. And I don't know how, I don't know why, but the lung association thing was one day, my office manager at the time, and I recently left my practice to start my own, but she came into my office. She said, Hey, you should be the American Lung Association spokesperson. I said, okay, well, what do I got to do? She's like, you don't have to do shit. You already have all this. Uh You have Instagram, you have your YouTube, you have your media exposure. All I got to do is just simply write it down and turn it in. And that's what we did. And I was one of the ones that was unanimously selected, right? There's 12 of us in the country. And that's just how it happened. It wasn't, um, you know, it it, it wasn't by accident. It Uh was on purpose from things that I had done previously. Right. And so um, that's how it happened. When work ethic meets opportunity, things things happen. So that's hey, that's really med spiring, man. Just hearing that from you. And I think it's a great way to look at things because 
the end product is you become a part of something that's bigger than yourself, you know, and, and you're able to speak on things from an expertise that you, you worked on. So it's, it might be effortless for you to do that at this point. But again, I always say like good things come to those who work hard and stay true. Tupac said that. Yeah. And I think, you know, the last, the last thing I'll say is to all those kids that are applying to medical school that want to go to medical school. You know, I get all these questions like, well, I don't want to call them or I don't want to email the school. I don't want to bother them. Let me tell you guys something real quick. When I applied to medical school and I wanted to go to Iowa because I thought Iowa was awesome. I was number 104 on the wait list, on the out-of-state wait list in California, number 104. So when they sent me the letter, I looked at it and I was like, okay, they think I'm 104. These guys don't know my name. So I said, you know what? I'm going to call these fools every day and make sure that they know Wow. Who the F I am. Yeah. So I called them every single day. And I said, hey. And then I said, hey, Linda. And then I said, hey, Penny. And then I said, hey, Kim. So they knew that Jamie was calling. And I went from number 104 to number 69 to wow. number 34 to 21 wow. to 9 to 6 to 3 and to 1 and to N within two and a half weeks. I don't know how it happened. I don't know why it happened, but I can tell you that I, you make things happen. And that's what I think is important. Gives hope to everybody out there. And you know, I have a similar experience with residency interviews. It's just like, call, pick up the phone, let them know who you are, be polite, yep. make sure, stay persistent. Cause you know, you gotta get what you're, you're out to get, you know? And that takes, that takes effort. And that leads us to the last question that I ask every single person that's been on this podcast. That's what is your definition of medspiration? <laughs> That's interesting. My definition of meds is something that has to do with the healthcare industry, whether it is applying to medical school, whether you're a civilian and you're watching uh, a, a physician perform a life-saving procedure, or whether you are a high school student being inspired by the local you know, drunk driving uh, stage that they put on with all those people. You know, Again, it's, it's whatever you're feeling uh, that has to do with healthcare in general. And then taking that feeling and applying it going forward and telling yourself, I'm going to do something about this. That, that's my inspiration for me. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling med-spired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something med-spiring.